another episode of Radio Rounds, the podcast interview series presented by St. Louis Children's Hospital, covering pediatric topics of interest to doctors and healthcare professionals. Here's Melanie Cole. For transgender kids and their families, access to individualized treatment can be hard to find. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Lewis. He's a Washington University pediatric endocrinologist and the director of the Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Dr. Lewis, on average, how many kids struggle with their identities in this country today? Well, the Williams Institute recently published in January 2017 a a demographic uh, report that looked at the amount of uh, the percent of individuals who identify as transgender, and they broke it down by age. And probably the patient population that uh, I deal with the most is 13 to 24-year-olds. And uh, they reported a percentage of about 0.7%. Now, if you compare that to the overall uh, entire population, that changes to about 0.6%. So that's about uh, the same percentage as type 1 diabetes, which is another condition I take care of all the time. Uh, So when we go through medical school, every physician that graduates knows a lot about type 1 diabetes, but very little about transgender health. What an interesting way for you to put it, because type 1 diabetes is something that seems to be more mainstream. But these kids and their families go through a really tough time sometimes. What are some of the challenges that you see most often? Well, uh, from a social standpoint, one of the things I see is acceptance and support, uh, not only from within their families, but within their uh, academic environment and community which has a significant impact on their psychological well-being. Uh, A study coming out of British Columbia showed that given the right amount of psychosocial support, a lot of the health disparities that we see in the transgender population, whether that be depression, suicidality, substance abuse, homelessness, those rates uh, or of those disparities normalize close to, if not reaching, the general population with just parental support. Um, and so really that, that feeling of belonging and being a part of their society and their community, it has a huge impact on them. Um, and that's just looking at the, uh, psychological aspects of it from a, a mental, uh, from a medical health standpoint. Um, there is very little, like I was saying that doctors don't graduate from medical school knowing a whole lot of the various aspects of transgender health. When someone goes to their primary care provider seeking advice and guidance, frequently the, the providers have little awareness of what are the issues that are affecting them. So medical competency is another huge disparity that affects every aspect of their life. So much so that studies have shown that transgender uh, patients avoid going to their doctors for preventative care and primary care concerns because of the fear of having to educate their physician, having to risk discrimination or harassment, whether it be purposeful or not. Um, And that has significant impacts on their overall uh, health outcomes. Well, Dr. Lewis, you have a chance to educate physicians right now with some of the medical ills that transgender 
children and teens might even face. I mean, there's breast cancer screening in transgender men. There's there's so many things as they grow into adulthood. So use this time now. Discuss some of these things that you want pediatricians and other physicians to know about transgender and what some of the medical issues that, that they want to bring up, that they want to talk about. Well, a lot of them are wanting to know about what are their options for uh, transitioning, both from a social standpoint and from a medical standpoint, which includes hormonal and surgical. Um, like I said, I don't expect everyone to uh, know all the nuances of, uh, the, of transgender medicine and what options exist, but I think that primary care physicians should be aware of the resources that exist within their community and be able to provide uh, referrals to either a physician that can talk about uh, the various aspects of options related to uh, transitioning and or uh, legal or social advocacy support groups that can help patients link up with the resources that they need. So what age should treatment begin? What do you want pediatricians to know about referral and what age should they be saying, you know what, you need to now see an endocrinologist and and get some of these things going? So we see patients in our clinic, uh, there is no minimum age. Uh, We do see patients falling into their 26th year. So when someone comes and sees us that is pre-pubertal, meaning they haven't yet started to show any signs of puberty, uh, we will talk to them about what are their options in the future um, to the parents so if they know what to think and what to expect in the future if, if someone goes on to wanting hormone therapy. Not everyone that identifies as transgender wants to undergo hormonal or surgical intervention, but they should be made aware about what their options are. And that's sort of the role that we fill at our transgender center um, is to provide that education so that patients and families can make the decision that is ultimately best for, for their family and their child. Um, when they are uh, first seeing someone, if like I said, if they're prepubertal, hormonal options are not really offered at that time. It is only once someone has actually started to show the signs of uh, puberty, whether that be with physical exam or laboratory uh, values of pubertal hormones, would we then consider offering a pubertal suppression agent, which the purpose of which is to delay the onset of potentially irreversible uh, secondary sexual characteristics that can be very difficult to erase, such as changes in voice, Adam's apple, or breast development. Once someone has shown uh, a degree of persistence, consistence, and insistence, and has met certain eligibility and readiness criteria, uh, we people do start to uh, offer hormone therapy in the form of testosterone or estrogen therapy. Typically, that has is not started until 14 or 16 years of age at the earliest, and there's a lot of uh, criteria, like I said, that need to be met before someone can go down that route. In terms of surgical intervention, uh, most uh, surgical options that are available to them do not really come into play until 18 years of age. So as long as you're talking about the Transgender Center, give us a little update on volume since the center opened. Make a connection with the overall need for the center of this nature with the volume of patients that you're seeing since it opened and what treatments and surgical procedures, therapies are you offering? 
So we have been open since August 2017, and we were seeing transgender patients before that mixed into our general endocrine clinic. Since then, our referral rates have uh, significantly skyrocketed. We're up to following about 200, just over 200 patients. Um, and again, not all of them are on hormone therapy. Some of them just need access to resources or uh, support groups or mental health providers. Um, so that is a, a role that we do play in uh, the care of our patients is to make sure that they have the appropriate social and mental health support that's required for them to be the most integral part of society that they can become. Outside of mental health and social support, we also do legal advocacy, helping to get uh, gender marker changes, name changes, making sure that people can play on the sports teams or use the restrooms or locker rooms that they identify with. Furthermore, when it comes to hormone therapy, um, we, like I said, we offer pubertal suppression agents, which give people not only the time to continue to explore what they may or may not want in the future, which, like I said, may or may not involve testosterone or estrogen therapy, but it gives them the time to, to explore this with their mental health professional, their parents and family members that help them make these decisions. When we are uh, going into testosterone or estrogen therapy, um, that's when we start doing much closer monitoring of, of hormone levels and other uh, chemistries and bone imaging studies to make sure that there's no negative uh, or risks associated with the therapy or we minimize those that we do uh, know that could be impacted, such as bone health. We make sure that someone's vitamin D, calcium, and other bone markers, as well as their bone age, which is looking at the growth plate and the density of their bones are closely monitored while they're on pubertal suppression agents. Um, when it comes to surgical interventions, uh, no one in the clinic does actual surgery. I do implant placement, which is more so a procedure. An implant uh, is a subcutaneous or just under the skin uh, hormone device that will release a medicine that stops someone's puberty. That's the only procedure that we actually do offer in the clinic. When it comes to uh, other surgical interventions, we rely closely uh, with our surgical colleagues within gynecology, urology, and plastic surgery in order to offer them uh, services related to top or bottom surgery. So in the last few minutes, Dr. Lewis, tell us a little bit about how you're measuring outcomes and what services does St. Louis Children's Hospital have to aid pediatricians in these discussions with families? Because that seems to be the place that most families would start and, and beginning that discussion, whether it's with your parents or with your pediatrician is that's really all encompassing. And that's probably one of the biggest things that these children go through. So speak about how you're measuring these outcomes and how pediatricians can start that discussion. Well, there is right now there's a paucity of data specifically in pediatric uh, transgender health of really looking at outcomes. So we have created uh, a, a, exhaustive list of variables that we are collecting and that we are going to be uh, putting into a clinical database that will help, uh, hopefully, us guide guidelines in the future. I know that there is a transgender research network that uh, is that's a group of four large institutions that sees 
uh, many more transgender patients than we do that is currently doing significant work looking at outcomes. Uh, but like I said, we do we know certain things to expect, such as changes in, in lipid levels or changes in red blood cells, and we monitor those closely, um, especially during the first year of therapy. Uh, we monitor every three months, and then after that, as long as things continue to look well, uh, we space to every six months or so. Uh, when it comes to uh, mental health outcomes, we are... Uh, collecting data related to anxiety, depression, parental support, uh, body, uh, body image satisfaction, and several other aspects of mental health that we are closely monitoring at every patient encounter. Um, and in terms of things that pediatricians can do to help get more information when they have patients that uh, have gender-related concerns, our Family Resource Center uh, has a lot of information that we have uh, created as a team in order to provide access to resources for our pediatricians. And frequently, they, uh, our pediatricians end up talking to me or one of the other team members directly about specific patient, uh, uh, patient encounters that they have very specific questions on because it's, it's hard to uh, create a guideline for this kind of care because every patient is unique and every patient's care is individualized. So there's no cookie cutter approach that we can really say, oh yes, this is what should happen in all patients of this age presenting with this concern. It really does take an, an art or a nuance that uh, is required to deliver the best care for these patients. And so that right now that does involve usually contacting us, uh, letting us know what's going on our social work, our clinical social worker, who's also an LCSW, our licensed clinical uh, therapist, can uh, help triage and manage a lot of the acute things that a patient may encounter and then get them set up to see one of the providers in the clinic to delve into things a little bit more deeply. So wrap it up for us. What, what would you like pediatricians and other physicians to know about the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital and what pediatricians can expect as far as referral and communication if they do refer? When someone is uh, calling, contacting us to request a referral, usually they'll speak to our social worker first um, where they will triage, she will triage the patient see exactly what their cares and needs are, and then help direct them to the appropriate provider, whether that is to talk to me about specifically hormone therapy or talk to another provider where they may need to explore things more closely related to mental health concerns. Um, once a patient has been seen by us in the clinic, uh, we will be in communication with our clinical documentation and address any other uh, concerns uh, directly with the primary provider. Thank you so much, Dr. Lewis, for being with us today. St. Louis Children's Hospital's Family Resource Center also offers free educational materials regarding these and other developmental topics. You can reach the Family Resource Center at 314-454-2350. A physician can refer a patient by calling Children's Direct Physician Access Line at 1-800-678-HELP. That's 1-800-678-4357. You're listening to Radio Rounds with St. Louis Children's Hospital. For more information on resources available at St. Louis Children's Hospital, you can go to stlouischildrens.org. That's stlouischildrens.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.